This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 38. Genesis 38, we continue our work, our walk through the first book of the Bible together. And let's ask God for his help as we approach his word. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of gathering with your people under the banner of the gospel. And Lord, we come, Lord, as representations of what you've done, your grace. You have redeemed and are redeeming a people for yourself. And this has been your plan from the beginning to glorify Christ through the purchase of a people that would love you and know you and spread your glory to the nations. And Lord, we pray we would see that every time we look to your word. And we pray, especially this morning, we would see as we're confronted yet again with the reality of the evil of the world and of our own sinful hearts. Lord, show us your redemption, your redemptive work in evil situations and evil people, but that we might worship you, that we might fear you, that we might walk in wisdom, that fathers might train their sons and daughters and mothers, their sons and daughters, to, to walk in wisdom in the fear of the Lord. So, Lord, we ask for your grace and help now as we look to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our focus in this last section of Genesis uh, is God's gracious work in the family of Jacob, and particularly Jacob's children. And we've said the camera is is really focused on Joseph, and we're going to see today a reminder of that, of the focus on another son in Judah. Uh, we, we've already begun to think about Joseph's journey that starts by being his father's favorite and goes to being hated and rejected and sold into slavery. And then we'll see exalted as a ruler and savior of his family. It's a story of redemption. But there's more to the story than just Joseph. Chapter 38 doesn't mention Joseph. And the focus here is on Judah. But the theme is the same. The theme is redemption. We serve a God that redeems evil acts and evil people. One of my favorite pictures of redemption comes from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia and that character of Edmund. And if you know the story, Edmund enters Narnia. I always get nervous when I talk about Narnia with Lou here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. He enters Narnia second, okay, after Lucy, and he is the typical older brother. He is very skeptical of this fantasy land in a wardrobe, which we could, we could understand. He's basically a jerk. And he makes fun of Lucy, and he's really mocking what is the good, the true and the beautiful. He's mainly concerned about his own needs. And so he encounters the white witch and is deceived by her, takes her tasty treats and gifts in exchange for information that she wants about Edmund and his family. So eventually he betrays 
and risk the lives of his whole family for his own selfish desires. But by the end of the story, he's not this bratty, evil traitor who's enslaved to the witch. He's a king. King Edmund the Just of all things. Friends, that is redemption. He meets the just king, the one true king, who pays for his sin with his own life and rises from the dead. That is what the God of the Bible, that's who he is. That's what he does. And that's what's on display here in Genesis 38. We're going to see evil acts and evil people, selfishness that you can barely get your mind around, lust out of control, hypocrisy, the betrayal of family for selfish ends, and then characters in that story that end up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The God of redemption and mercy finds them. In chapter 37, we saw that Joseph's most beloved, or Jacob's most beloved son, Joseph, was hated by his brothers. He was hated because he told on them. He was hated because his father loved him the most, and he gave him this royal coat. He was hated because of his dreams that showed him to be this future ruler, even over his own family. And so the brothers, if you remember, go shepherding the flock away from their father. Jacob sends his beloved son to the brothers. They see him coming and come up with a plot to murder him. He's only saved by Reuben, his oldest brother, who has the idea of let's throw him in the pit and then later I'll come back and rescue him. But Judah's desire for profit, his opportunistic desire to make money off of the deal, takes over, wins out, and and he is actually sold to slave traders for 20 shekels of silver. So Joseph goes down to Egypt. He's purchased there by Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh. That's where we left off our story. That's where chapter 38 begins. The main point of today's sermon is this, fear and worship the Lord, the God of redemption. Fear and worship the Lord, the God of redemption. And we're going to look at the passage here in three parts that are hopefully going to support that point. So here they are up front if you're taking notes. Number one, we're going to see in the first 11 verses a reminder to fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And then in verses 12 to 23, we're going to see that God redeems evil acts. He redeems evil acts. And then finally, in verses 24 to 30, God redeems evil people. God redeems evil people. So the providence of God, the mercy of God, the justice of God, the sovereign power of God all come together in Genesis 38 and bring us to our knees. And I pray it brings us to worship and fear the Lord, the God of redemption. So let's look at this first section together, the first 11 verses under this heading, Fear the Lord. Sometimes you know what something is by seeing what it isn't. We know what it is by seeing what it isn't. So I know what respecting your parents looks like when I hear a child disrespect their parents, or what a good attitude looks like when you see a bad attitude. We see that in these verses. Not, we see what not fearing the Lord looks like and the consequences that just come along with it. So look at verse 1 of chapter 38. It happened at, the, at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Uh, that phrase, at that time, just connects this passage with what just happened with Joseph and him going down to Egypt, and now um, Judah is going away from his brothers 
The events in chapter 38 are going to take up over 20 years. So just kind of get your mind there. Uh, 20 years are going to occur in this one chapter. And there's going to be some overlap with what we see happening with Joseph in the coming chapters. And I think Moses wants us to start to have a parallel between Judah and Joseph. And so Joseph went away from his brothers. Now Judah is going away from his brothers. Judah's going to be faced with some temptation. He's going to handle it one way. Joseph in the next chapter is going to be faced with some temptation. He's going to handle it a different way. So there's this comparison that I think Moses wants us to, to keep, a, keep an eye on. So he goes to see this friend Hira, the Adulamite, and while he's staying with him, this is what we read takes place. Look at verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. This is not good. Uh, We're reminded of Genesis 9 when Shem had sinned against Noah and we read those dreadful words in chapter 9, verse 25, cursed be Canaan. Those same words that were said to the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, cursed are you, We know that Abraham made it very clear that Isaac was not to to marry a Canaanite in chapter 24. Isaac told Jacob, you must not marry a Canaanite in chapter 28. We saw the disapproval from Isaac and Rebekah in Esau's marriage to Canaanites. They were idolaters who would lead Israel away from his God and from their God. And yet Judah brazenly takes a Canaanite for his Wife. We're, we're under the old covenant. We're thinking in terms of nations here. If you're thinking, what are we, what are, how does this apply today? We think in terms of believers and non-believers. We wouldn't, we wouldn't intentionally, our church covenant says, if we're single, marry a non-Christian. But this is a brazen move to, to disobey and, and rebel against the Lord and his own father. And this language of he saw her and took her, it reminds us of other things in Genesis. Like the woman who saw the fruit and saw it was desirable and took it. Genesis 6, the gods, sons of God saw the daughters of men and took them, which was a precursor to the destruction of the, of the world in the flood. Shechem saw Dinah and took her in Genesis 34. One author politely says that their relationship was based more on chemistry than principle. Another less politely says it was lust at first sight. That's what it is. Judah is a man ruled, driven by his passions and lusts. He does not fear the Lord. And he has disregarded God's commands and his father's instruction. That is, by the way, the biblical definition of a fool. Proverbs 15, verse 5, a fool despises his father's instruction. But whoever heeds reproof is prudent. He's acting like a fool. Judah has three sons with this unnamed Canaanite. We only know that she's the daughter of Shua. And the names, the sons are named Ur and, and Onan and Shelah. And then look at verse 6. We read this. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. We assume that Tamar is also a Canaanite, um, but it's interesting that 
That's not mentioned, only her name, which is the reverse of Judah's wife. Did you notice that? His wife, whose name isn't mentioned, only that she's a Canaanite. And Tamar's name is mentioned, but not where she comes from. And I just think that's interesting, the way Moses presents her. We're going to want to pay attention to that. Uh, she is at the center section of this passage. Uh, notice the first, first five verses tell us about the birth of Judah's three sons. And then the next verses, 6 to 10, are going to tell us about the death of his sons. And, and, and one that is kind of gone into hiding. And in the middle of those, those accounts is this presentation of Tamar. She is the main actor in this chapter. So let's, let's keep that in mind as we go. Verse 7, But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. In, in Hebrew, the word Er is actually the word evil spelled backwards. So it would be like if you saw the word live and evil next to each other. Live is evil spelled backwards. It's Moses' way. Moses is brilliant. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit of making this point really clear, making these connections. We don't know the details of his wickedness, but whatever it was, it warranted his death. The Lord put him to death. Friends, it is good that we have sentences like that in our Bibles to remind us of who the, who the God of the universe is. It is easy, particularly in our country, to, to slide into a very domesticated version of God that is nothing like the God of the Scriptures. This is what disregarding the Word of God, despising the Word of God, and the, the, the God that made us Himself, this is what this brings about. God is holy, and the wages of sin are death. I heard Paul Washer say one time that God is good and God is holy and that is bad news for you and me because we are not apart from Christ. So Tamar is now a widow. A widow. She's lost her husband. The Lord has put her to death. Verse 8. Let's pick it up there. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, it's important when we read the Bible that we read it in context, and often that means laying aside our Western cultural norms and climbing inside the Bible's world. Now is one of those times when it's really important to do that, to climb inside what is going on now here in the Bible's world. And I want to say something about the practice of leveret marriage. Uh, that term, leveret, it, it, it's rooted in the Latin word lever, which just means brother-in-law. And, and this is a common practice in ancient times, and then it would also be later commanded in God's law. In Deuteronomy 25, just so I'll read a brief section from Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, and his name may be may not so his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Okay, so this means that the brother is obligated to raise up seed for his deceased brother, to carry on the name. And this is particularly important for, for, for Israel that is gathered around this promise of land and seed and blessing to redeem the world. And if 
we read later in God's law that if the brother doesn't do this, he's to be publicly shamed in Israel. Now, granted, here the law of Moses isn't enacted, doesn't exist, but I think we see some of the, the blueprints of it, and Moses would expect the readers of Genesis to continue reading the rest of the law and understand all of these things kind of, kind of put together. This is a common practice, so I just want you to hear that as we go through normal in this culture to do this kind of thing. It is the right thing to do, okay? But we read in verse 9, but Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So Onan is commanded to do this duty. He understands, now that my oldest brother is dead, I am next in line and I'm going to inherit 50% of Judah's estate. I'm not, I'm not going to provide any more heirs. Why would I do that? He's all about himself. He's not about the promises of God. He's about himself getting the money getting the inheritance for himself. And so he goes against his father's commands. He goes against the Lord's desire and instruction and makes sure, as much as it can depend on him, that Tamar will not become pregnant. And you, you see how that happens there in the rest of the verse. And I, I want to credit here Jim Hamilton for bringing this to my attention, the, the Hebrew here. The ESV is interpreting what the text actually says there in verse 9 which is something like he ruined, which in Hebrew literally means he ruined the ground or destroyed the earth. And that is a phrase that is connected and repeated throughout Genesis, particularly Genesis 6 to 9 in the flood narrative. Then in Genesis 13, in the destruction of Sodom. And so Moses is connecting what Onan does here with Sodomites and those that brought about the destruction of the, the earth in Genesis 6 to 9. That's a language connection that we, we sometimes miss in the English. The, the Lord ruined or laid waste to the earth. That's what Onan does. He's acting like someone from that generation. And so the results from living a life like that, disregarding God's word, disregarding God in verse 10, shouldn't surprise us. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death also. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So friends, our takeaway from this is that God is not safe. He's not Santa Claus. He's not a grandfather in the sky. He's not to be taken lightly. Young men, hear this. Do you fear the Lord? Do you know this God, the God of the Bible? Fearing the Lord, brother or sister in Christ, is a great asset when we're tempted to gossip or we're tempted to, to, to sin in, in another way, to, to criticize. And I understand this is the Old Testament, but we can, all we need to do is just flip our Bibles over to Acts chapter 5 and think about the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who are struck dead, maybe like in a members meeting of a church, because they're putting themselves outwardly to be righteous by selling their property to provide for the church, when inwardly they're full of greed. Friends, the Lord is worthy of our worship and reverence and fear. Lucy asks the beavers at one point in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan, is he a man? Lucy asked, and Mr. Beaver said sternly, certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, king of the wood, and the slippery beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, 
the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about, being, about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. He is good, but he is not safe. Back to our story. Tamar is now a widow twice over. Twice over. Pick it up there in verse 11. Judah says to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So on the surface, it seems like Judah's doing the right thing. My son's not old enough to, to marry you yet, but when he grows up, I'll send him to you. Go to your father's house. But deep down, he fears some kind of superstition that really the problem is Tamar. She's just a bad wife. A bad, she's bad luck. All her husbands die. I don't want to give my other son to you because he's going to die. So that's what he fears. He doesn't fear the Lord. That's his motivation. He's deceiving her. And sending her away basically to be a widow instead of fulfilling the duty that he knows he's to do. But Tamar's story and Judah's story are just starting. So let's look at the next section together. That's number one, fear the Lord. Beginning now in verse 12, let's look at number two, God redeems evil acts. Look at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to to Timnah, to his sheep shearers, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. It's as if Judah is haunted by death. It just follows him everywhere he goes. Now his wife has died. But I want to note that we don't see a whole lot here about mourning from Judah for his dead sons. Compare that to what, the way Jacob reacted when Joseph was thought to be dead. He said, I'm going to go down to Sheol in mourning. You can't comfort me. And here it's just kind of flippantly, when he was comforted, he goes and takes a trip to see his buddy after the appointed time is over. It seems bad things happen when he goes and sees this guy. Friend, I wonder if you, if you have a friend like that where you just know when I go see him or I go to see him on purpose to do some things that I know I shouldn't be doing. That seems like the kind of friend that this guy is to Judah. The time of sheep shearing is very festive. It's a basically a big party. Lots of wine is happening and lots of other things are happening. And this is when Tamar goes into to action. So verse 13, And when Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. So she's been in mourning, Unlike Judah, but she sees the writing on the wall. Sheila is an adult now. Nobody's been knocking on her door. Judah has no plans for him to come and marry her, but she has a desire here. And I, I think this is a good desire, especially given the context. And perhaps she knows and understands something about the promise 
that would be given to Judah. Having children in this culture is a very different thing than having children in our culture, especially here as we're, we're thinking about the promises of Abraham that are in view to this specific family. Now, that does not justify what she does, what she's about to do. It is sin. But understanding the culture and, and what, seems to be, what seems to be a desire very much from, that's like Ruth's desire, uh, to, to, to be named in the people of God and, and to, to find a kinsman redeemer. It kind of gives us an understanding of who Tamar is. And so she dresses herself in a particular way. She places herself in a particular place because she knows a particular person will not just be able to walk past her. She knows Judah well. And she's right. Let's read this next section and see what, what happens. So start there in verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. I think that's just a note that Moses, Moses is saying, This is not intentional incest. Okay, it's fornication and adultery, but it's not that. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah is in a very bad place. Can we agree on that? He is out of control. He goes after what is seemingly a, most likely, a temple prostitute. So not just a common prostitute, but one that is somehow associated with a cult religion of fertility, likely. He does not fear the Lord. He turns from worshiping God and is now worshiping his lusts. And he's willing to give her whatever she wants. He can't wait to acquire a goat and then come back. He's going to have a goat sent later and give you a pledge now. And this pledge is the equivalent of giving away his identity. His signet or seal is this cylinder with a special imprint on it that would identify Judah. He could roll it on clay and it would make a special mark and it would be held on around his neck with a cord. She wants that cord. And his staff is a sign of his authority and it's kind of carved personally at the top to show this is who Judah is, a sign of of his leadership in the clan. So he's effectively saying, here's my passport, my social security number, my credit card, and all my passwords. Have at it. I'll send the goat later. It reminds us of Esau, doesn't it, who gave away his birthright for a hot cup of soup. And don't miss the symbolism here. She is just receiving now all the markers of a true Israelite. She's getting that from Judah, which is going to foreshadow her inclusion into God's people. Tamar is very purposeful. She has a plan. She doesn't decide, I think I'm going to go be a prostitute now. She has a plan. She, and I'm not justifying the plan, but she has a plan. She executes the plan and then changes back into her widow's garments. And now she's pregnant, not from one of Judah's sons, but from Judah himself. 
And so we read in verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take, <laughs> there's the friend again, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enayim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, replied let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent the, the young goat and you did not find her. So when it comes around time for payment, uh, he doesn't have the nerve to deliver the goat himself. He sends his friend to do it. And then his friend comes back and just imagine the way he's telling him this story. Notice that it's repeated by Moses what these people said. No cult prostitute has been here. I wonder if that acted like a little bit of a rock in Judah's shoe. Like, well, where did she go? Who was she? And finally, he just decides, well, we're going to let her keep these things. Because I don't want to look, I don't want to be a joke to this community. I don't want to be able to laugh at me. Verse 23. Do you see, he's, he, he doesn't have the nerve to go himself. He sends his friend and he doesn't want to be made fun of it. It would be like, and pardon this crude illustration of someone who's in a religious position um, for getting his credit card at some adult nightclub. He can't remember which nightclub it is. He has to go around asking for it. Like that's the picture that we have here. He doesn't want to go himself. Now this entire story is terrible. It is terrible and wicked and sad. But it is not the end of the story. God is going to use these events, friends, Sometimes we wonder, how can these things happen in my life be used? These events in Genesis 38 to perpetuate the line of the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ himself. So we read in Matthew chapter 1, in the genealogy of Jesus, quote, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And 10 generations later, David would be listed, and then Jesus himself. It's interesting that four of the five women in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus are non-Israelites. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. All those, all of, they all come outside of Israel and interestingly have some irregular or scandalous marriage union. But God redeems their situations and they wind up in the line of Christ by faith. And then that fifth woman, Mary, an Israelite, also has an irregular marriage union. Perhaps this is a preparation for that. Perhaps it's a preparation that Jesus has come not just for Israel, but for the whole world, for all the Gentiles. That's what Simeon is rejoicing about in Luke 2. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And for the glory of your people, Israel. That is our call, isn't it? As followers of Jesus, as the church, as University Park Baptist Church, to make disciples of all nations by calling everyone to repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. And to trust the redemption that only comes through God and through Christ. Even redemption of evil events in our lives. But he doesn't just redeem evil acts, but he redeems evil people. That's our last heading this morning that we'll mention. Number three, God redeems evil 
people. And it is hard to imagine that Judah could go any lower in this passage, but he does. So look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality, even maybe literally by prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Bring her out and let her be burned. He is an evil hypocrite. The penalty for immorality, adultery, in later in Israel would be death by stoning. And again, this is before that. But Judah calls for her to be burned. It's like he sees this as an opportunity to finally get rid of her. Not only has he kept Tamar from his son, now he condemns her to die for the very sin that he committed with her. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? You talk about double standard. You talk about hypocrisy and evil. But, verse 25, and she was being brought out. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man to whom these things belong. I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. On her way to die, she gives Judah these identity markers, his own identity markers. Please identify whose these are. Remember, that's the same phrase that Judah and his brothers asked of their father when they sent Joseph's coat full of blood back to him. Could you identify this coat? Is this your son's? Again, we see the deception, deception involving a, a goat. Did you catch that? How many times have we seen that? A sacrificial goat and items of clothing. Judah is confronted here with his sin, and this is the grace of God. He is confronted with his sin, and it is the grace of God with his hypocrisy, his sexual immorality, his callous heart. And friends, by God's grace... And by the power of the Holy Spirit, it lands on him. He sees his sin for what it is. And he repents. He repents of his sin. And I think he believes in the promises of God. I think what we read in verse 26 is a summary of Judah's conversion, of that moment. Look at verse 26. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. He he confesses his sin. I did not give her my son like I should have. That was sinful. Everybody knows the sin of immorality. That's obviously, that we know that's happened. But she is more righteous than I. She is the righteous one. And not only does he rescue her from death, but he doesn't, he treats her with honor. He doesn't lay with her anymore. He doesn't know her again. Friends, from this point on in the narrative, Judah is going to be a new person. The evil, callous, opportunistic, lustful hypocrite is changed into a sacrificial, loving brother and son. That is possible by the grace of God. He offers himself as a slave to save Benjamin. 
from going back home to his father because he says, my father couldn't bear it. To see to the misery of if, if we lost Benjamin too. He's going to be the leader, the spokesperson, and he's going to receive the blessing of kingship in chapter 49. He's described as a lion's cub. Genesis 49, 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And from Judah, the true lion would be born. Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. His sacrifice on the cross would pay for the debt of sin that we all owe. There's no hope apart from Jesus' perfect life, lived in our place, fulfilling the law of God in his atoning death that absorbed the wrath of God for all of his people in his victorious resurrection from the dead three days later. Friend, believe on Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, look to Jesus and you will find redemption and hope. Look to him today. This is what God does. No one is beyond this grace. His saving and redeeming hand. Let's look and see how the, the chapter ends here in verse 27 and following. When the time of her labor came, this is Tamar, there were twins in her room, womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Tamar lost two husbands, and the Lord blesses her with two sons. Judah lost two sons. The Lord blesses him with two sons. This is just God's grace. And again, we have twins in the womb struggling. Who's going to come out? Who's going to be the firstborn? Like Jacob and Esau. And I read this passage a lot, and sometimes I was confused about who was the oldest and the youngest, but the way I remember is that scarlet thread on Zerah's finger. It reminds us of Esau's red hair, that connection. And, And so they are the older, but the younger comes out first. Perez comes out first. His name means something like breach. And he would, he would carry the line of promise all the way to Jesus. The hope of the world. My hope and your hope. Judah's hope. Jesus is our redeemer. Our redeemer lives. Listen to John's description of the, the wall around the city in the, in the heavenly Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21, verse 12. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Judah's name is on that wall. It's inscribed on that wall. So friend, let me just ask you, who have you counted out of the reach of God's grace? Maybe it's yourself. Who have you stopped praying for? Who have you stopped intentionally going to share the gospel with because you think they're too far gone? Have you given up because you've done just too much? Who have you just cut off, canceled from your life because of something they did to you? If God can save Judah and radically transform him, who can he not save? And the truth is we are all in his boat without a hope apart from the grace of God. And God has completely, totally, irreversibly redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. 
Uh, so there's this great part in Edmund's story. Back to the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Edmund finally meets Aslan in the story. He's forgiven by Aslan. He has this conversation with him. He's encouraged by Aslan. And then he is again confronted by the white, by the white rich. And she accuses him. And she is unaware of his change of heart. And so the same Edmund who naively, he accepted the Turkish delight, um, you know, from evil now he's matured and changed into this person who's delighting in the good, delighting in Aslan. And so the, 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 it goes like this. It says, you, the witch says, you have a traitor there, Aslan. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. But Edmund had got past thinking about himself after all that he'd been through. And after the talk he'd had that morning, and I just love this part, and he just went on looking at Aslan, it didn't seem to matter what the witch said. So friends, that's my encouragement to you this morning. Fear and worship the Lord, the God of redemption. Keep on looking at Jesus. Don't listen to what your accuser says. There is enduring and everlasting redemption in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the way that redemption is woven all throughout your word and that it culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we worship you this morning. We are aware that we do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve to have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. It can only be written by the blood of Jesus. It's only through the blood that we can be made right with you. And we are made right amazingly, accepted and loved. Lord, we pray that love would land on us, your redeeming love. And we pray that it would change the way that we interact with one another and the way that we love those who don't know you. We pray you would do this work in us, work this in us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.